TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. We live in a cold place. Make no mistake, what's going on here? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. Design Matters is on summer break, and we'll be back with a new season in the fall. In the meantime, we're sharing some of the live interviews Debbie has recently done in front of an audience. The audio isn't always perfect, but the interviews are lively. This one, with Laurie Anderson, took place in March 2018 at the On Air Fest in Brooklyn. Hey, everybody. I have Laurie Anderson on the stage, right? How exciting is this? So we're, we're going to talk for about an hour. Um, we're going to talk about Lori's career, her life, her ideas. We're also going to talk about politics. So I'm telling you now, get ready. Um, so Lori, my first question is, um, you said you've seen three ghosts in your life. When and where and who? This is the great thing about secrets. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you know, it's so important to have secrets. Some things that you just never tell anyone. I mean, nobody. And I, I really like that. A lot of my songs and stories are kind of addressed to the, the part of you that never speaks. The one that's uh, in there. And uh, I don't know about you, but you know, that part of me is often kind of critical. The one who also is going, who do you think you are? You know, are you, do that? Are you really trying to do this or that? You know, so I try to fight against that, but I, I do like um, uh, being in, someone in contact with that part of myself. So it's only been three ghosts, no, no more than you that? You never know. Ah, okay, now <laughs> you, you quoted the late, great David Foster Wallace, who stated every ghost story is a love story. Do you still think that's true? It's actually the other way. Every love story is a ghost story, ah. is what he said. And uh, I, I think you can definitely say that. Uh, and I am very fond of, of uh, quoting my teachers. So uh, David Foster Wallace is a big 
big mind. I really like him a lot. And I also, in that book, and in that film too, which is, uh, was quoting, you're quoting from a film called Heart of a Dog, uh, a film about my dog. And I um, uh, also quoted a, a lot of things from my teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, in there. So there are these little things that, I don't know about you, but I just need like little short words to live by once in a while. You know, life goes by so fast and things come up and you don't know what to do. You know, you're like, oh, I, I, you're at a loss. And you're, but you're on your feet. We're moving really fast now. So um, what do you do? So I have these little things. Um, one is uh, Minka Rinpoche, my Tibetan teacher, who said, uh, try to practice how to feel sad without actually being sad. How do you do that, Laurie? I was going to ask you that later on in That's our interview. It's a wonderful distinction, you know, because there are plenty of uh, sad things in the world. In fact, there are plenty of horrible things or tragic things. And if you don't recognize them, if you don't pay attention to them, you're an idiot. They will come and they'll kill you. And so keep your eyes open. But on the other hand, his, the point of this, this little practice was do not become them. Don't become that sad stuff. But did he also turn it around to the notion of how to manage happiness? Uh, I think that is uh, very basic to to his uh, to his thinking because he really doesn't actually believe um, that we're here to suffer and punish and be punished, and uh, but that we're here to have a really, really, really good time. That's what we're here for. So uh, I like that philosophy. I, you know, there are, other th- there are other people who say we're here for other reasons. They have other reasons. They're stacking up. And you could, you could go with that. I choose to go with this because I just, I don't know, I'm a party person. I wouldn't have thought that about you, actually. Yeah, I am a party person, aren't you? you Not really, no. no. What, do you, what are you here for? Um... Learning. Uh-huh. Learning. Well, that's your idea of a good time, right? Totally. Okay, so you're here to have a good time. Yeah, that's... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, I want to get a little bit meta. You said this about audiences. The audience creates its own personality in the first five minutes. They will either be generous, funny, silly, withholding, academic, analytical, grudging, And I'm fascinated with how that gets constructed because it happens right away. Because audiences, whether they're seeing a film or a a reading or whatever it is, a concert, they decide very quickly what kind of show it is and then they judge it. And so I was wondering how that might be manifested today with an audience. Turning it right back on you all. And on on all these people listening who aren't in this room, which is... Really nice part of your the way you tell stories because you're you know lots of um, usually I mean I'm an artist who works in a live situation so um, as opposed to um, uh, well that's not true actually there's a bunch of books and records that I've done but anyway I do love live energy and I I, I really appreciate that you bothered to come here on a, like a cloudy Sunday morning and and I want I do want to do a little thing with you before we go too much farther because. I don't know if, if you remember, a year and a half ago, morning after the election, it's totally gray in New York, and 
really dreary November day. And, you know, it was, do you remember how quiet it was? It was so quiet. People just didn't, they, they didn't come out, they, they weren't going to work, they weren't even getting out of bed. This was, this was a heavy day. And you're kind of going, wow, this is, this is now what we will call reality. Now, what happened shortly after that was one of my heroes was asked to comment on the election. This is Yoko Ono. So they said, Yoko, we'd like to have your comment on the election. And she did this one-minute scream. Now, this was not a meta-scream. This was not an art historical, clever, ironic, um, meaningful a scream. This was a blood-curdling scream from hell. Now, so I, what I want to do with you <laughs> is we're not going to scream for a minute, but we're going to scream for a long six seconds. And before we do, I want you to prepare for this because we're going to put our mics out and point them towards you so that people who are listening to this later can join us in the scream. So what I want you to think of, uh, if you need to, to channel anything, to get up for the screen, the six-second screen, you know, you go to things like, you know, that morning if you want to, go to uh, the, mm, uh, go to Florida a couple weeks ago, go to the upcoming military parade, go to the wall, go to our businessman president, go to all the things that are so messed up in your own life, you know? <laughs> Just, there's a lot of material. I know, I, I have a lot of material. <laughs> so, I'm gonna Go into our archives. Yeah, come to our pain archives. I'm gonna give you a three, and then we're gonna do this for six. Are you ready? Okay, one, two, three. So excellent. So, and those people in the back are just like still doing it. I think we should do that again. Oh, yeah, you know. How good was that? That was great. That was great. Now, that's called an audience. That's, that's really. Thank you, audience, for participating. <laughs> yes. I want to talk a little bit about your childhood, your entry in the, Encyclop in the Encyclopedia Britannica states that you started studying classical violin at age five. Why? Because um, mom said I had to do it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like we had a family orchestra. And it was that kind of family. It was kind of like a little, little machine. We all wore, okay, matching outfits. They did. I've seen pictures. Uh, eight kids in like navy skirts and, and pants and red turtleneck sweaters. And it was kind of fun, you know, it was kind of fun to be part of a group. But, uh, but you get lost in that group, and I also like that. Although I had real, a lot of envy for people who were just one or two kids. I thought that would be just wonderful. You wanted attention as you were growing up, because you were in this group of seven other kids. And though you were very engaged in lots of different pursuits, in a way to, in an effort to stand out, you attempted to do a backflip off of a diving board when you were, I think, 12. That resulted in you 
being in the hospital for quite a long time. Talk about that experience. Um, I was thinking about the need for attention and imagining what it must have been like to want attention so badly that you were going to go up on a diving board and literally jump off. Well, let's not exaggerate that so much. Is it, you know, when you're a kid, you think back when you were 12, you're just, you're, you're a show off, you're a know-it-all. You know, at that time I was also doing things that when I was 12, I, I, I wrote a letter to um, JFK because he was running uh, for president, and he was doing the Wisconsin primaries, and uh, and I, I wrote a, a letter to to him, because, dear Jack Kennedy. I, I admire the way you're running your campaign in Wisconsin, and I'm running for student council president, and I, I wonder if you could give me some advice, right? Just a twelve-year-old, you know. Oh, you think the world revolves around me? I'm twelve, you know. So I got a letter from Jack. And it was a pretty long letter. And do you was, still have it? Yes, I do. And uh, I, I recently did some things at the Kennedy Center, and I'm giving them this letter. Anyway, so, um, so he said uh, a number of bullet points, you know, about you know, politics. And he said, you know, find out, basically, it came down to find out what the students want and promise it. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's practical. He's not, he's saying, don't be an ideologue. Be a representative. You're representing these people. It's not your idea. So try to find out what's, what they want. What do people want? We the people kind of thing. So anyway, uh, I, um, I wrote to him uh, uh, about a couple months later, and I said... Uh, you wrote back. I wrote, I wrote back and said, you know, I'm sorry I haven't gotten back to you sooner. <laughs> I've been very busy. And I won the election, and best wishes in your own campaign. Sincerely, Lori Anderson. You know, so, you know, it's like, so. So then, did you become pen pals? Then what happened was even better, because we lived out by a lake, out in kind of like, not in a place where you, you'd get deliveries that much, but a delivery truck came with a white long box of red roses from Jack and a telegram. Um, congratulations on the elections, Jack Kennedy. And this was, of course, front page news in uh, the Glen Ellen News. A local girl receives roses from Jack Kennedy, and every woman in town fell in love with Jack. You know, he was a, he was a seducer. I mean, all politicians have their, their thing, their style. And he was that. He and Jackie had their style thing going. And, and we, we really went for it. I mean, it was so glamorous. And, and also, um, he didn't have to write to a 12-year-old kid, but he knew, that, you know, that's good enough, that's good. Anyway, uh, but back to your uh, saying, so, so jumping off the diving board, wasn't, it wasn't just look at me. I mean, I'm actually not an artist who does confessional work or stuff. I, I kind of look over there and try to describe it. I don't care if you know me at all. I don't, it's not about self-expression, you know, or uh, at this point, probably trying to get attention in a group of kids was just um, also the thing you do for a dare and for fun, and just because you can. So uh, I went up on this board and I thought, how hard can it be to do a triple flip? I've seen people do it, I'm gonna give it a shot. And Never so, having done it before. No, I hadn't done it before. But uh, you know, you learn from other people. You learn from, hey, let's see, you walk to the end and then 
jumped on the board and, you know, so I did that. Uh, but I, I missed the pool. And then a boom on the edge of the concrete. And I broke my back. And I spent a couple months in traction in the hospital in the children's ward. And the doctor who came to see me said, you're never going to walk again. And I'm looking at this guy thinking, how would you, you're, are you even a doctor? I mean, I remember thinking, why is he saying something like that to me? You know, and I, so I spent that time talking to my feet, just saying, move. I want you to move. I was looking at you. Move. Um, and um, it's funny to tell a story about a story, you know, because this, was, this became my story, my kid's story. Like, what, was it, what were you like as a kid? You all have stories. You drag them out. I was a shy person, or I was a punk, or I was a little, you know, you have your little stock stories that you, this is my stock story. So, you know, it kind of, in a way, started to represent me, and, uh, and it was, uh, and you get a little bit of identity from it, whatever that means, you know, and then you push against it. What happened with this story was once I was telling it and I, and I uh, had, uh, what I remember about this was um, uh, how much I couldn't stand the doctors and how much uh, the people who came to read to me um, were reading stories like The Grey Rabbit. And The Grey Rabbit is hopping down the road. Hello, Lori. And I couldn't also talk, so I'm like, <laughs> and... <laughs> Hello, Laurie. How are you feeling today? I mean, okay, they were they meant to be kind, you know, but they were reading me the Grey Rabbit, and I'd been reading stories like, you know, Crime and Punishment, and, you know, <laughs> Moby Dick, the idiot, you know. <laughs> it's like, so I'm like, what are you reading these baby stories to me? And and so, uh, so I had kind of a, you know, I was that kind of kid, and and. Uh, I was in the burn ward, so uh, all of these kids are being in these little slings uh, where their their burns are being bathed in these liquids in there and there. So anyway, once much later in my life, um, somebody said, "Okay, you you were spent your uh, two years in a brace. Okay, so from 12 to 14, you, you, women in the audience, you remember that's not a great time to be immobilized in a brace." You know, it's not a great time for a boy either, <laughs> so it was horrible. But anyway, that's what they did at that point. But so that became part of the story too. But at one point I was describing this to someone and I had, you know, so sometimes you're in the middle of some language thing and you remember actually what it was like. And in this case, for me, it was sound. And it was a hallucination of sound. It was like suddenly, I don't know why, why it happened, but it was like suddenly back in the in the burn ward, and uh, I could hear the sounds of, of the kids all night, and, they, uh, and the sound of kids crying and, and screaming, and this special sound that children make when they're dying, because almost all the kids died. They were, this was a severe burn ward. And so I realized that, you know, I had really forgotten this, what it was really like, and I had gotten caught up into the story about it. And so I realized that, that repetition does that with stories, and, and your identity does that with your own story, too. The more you tell it, the more you forget it. 
And so trying to get into, oh, if, you're, if you're remembering something, into the, the grittiness of what that really was, instead of the story that you're telling about it, is something that's really been important to me as an artist, to kind of like, what is memory, you know? What, how do you get back to that day, to that moment? And, and you've dressed it up usually in some nicer way than it was, you know, and I often think about that, uh, how I've done that in my life, and, and, and not seen the complexity of really what was going on. Laurie, I've been thinking about that story a lot since I first read about it and heard about it, and I'm wondering if at the time you were just remembering what you were capable of remembering, that somehow you weren't, your psyche wouldn't have been able to tolerate that type of grief or pain. Yeah, I mean, you, you, uh, that's absolutely what it is. You, you, for a 12-year-old, you, you, you can't tell that story. You can't tell the story of children dying. You're not able to. And uh, <clears throat> so as an adult, I was telling the story of a 12-year-old telling the story. So it's a kind of puppetry that went on and on, which reminds me of, of a story in the book, which was I was in an interview situation like this because I'm, I'm trying to talk to you, but I'm also trying to talk to you, and I'm trying to talk to all these people who are some other year, and they're listening to this thing. Uh, and it's a complicated thing, and so I was had asked an interviewer to come to my studio, and usually I don't do that because I, I, I just don't. And um, uh, mostly because, you know, it takes so many things, you know, so long to hide all the things in your place that you need to hide, and somebody's <laughs> coming over, you know, and you're like, well, I'm put that away, and put that away, and that's exhausting by the time they get there, you're out of steam. And so this woman showed up, and she had a, um, we were going to do an interview on music in a recent album that I did, and so she, she reached in her bag, and she, pulled out like a sock and put it on her hand and she began to animate the sock as a sock puppet. And she said, um, say, do you mind if we do this interview with this sock puppet? And I was like, and she wasn't like a really good puppeteer. So it wasn't really, sink the puppet hand wasn't really syncing with the words that well. So I, I said, yeah, uh, I'll be right back. So I got up and I, you know, I. You always have a stray sock around, extra stock. So I got uh, my I extra often socks, do. and yeah. I said, uh, you know, put my sock on, and she had her sock on, and we did it as a kind of sock puppet interview. And it worked out well, because we had a little bit of distance from who we thought we were, you know, and we could say things that we maybe wouldn't have said if we had to have um, stayed in our own so-called identity. You know, I mean, because these are traps, these things, you know, and people want you to stay in your, stay in character. They don't like you doing stuff that's out of character. You know, because, I don't know why, because, you know, you, you design this personality, and then, you have, then you're stuck with it. People say, that's not really you to say that. You go, really? Yeah. <laughs> How do you know that, what me is? It's a design thing that I'm showing you, but it's not necessarily who I am. So, um, I'm feeling really inadequate. I have no socks. <laughs> I have no tricks. <laughs> you got a lot of tricks. You've been doing this for 13 years. I have. Which is, I, I can't tell you how much I admire persistence. And I, I, I really do, because it's one thing to get a good idea, and it's, and it's another to watch it and push it and watch it unfold, and you've done this for so long. It's, and that's, it's just like one very, 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 very long story with a lot of chapters. And a lot of different memories that yeah. sort of keep evolving and changing. Right. Thank yeah. you. I think people would be surprised to know that when you were growing up, you were a cheerleader. 
<laughs> but you Thanks were also so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about designing, right? Um, but you, you were also the star of your senior play. You were an editor at your school's newspaper. You were the violinist. You were also an artist. And this was really fascinating to me. You made homemade magazines about colonial times. Yes, I did, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Please tell me you still have some of those as well. Yeah, you know how much fun it is to do that kind of penmanship, like old colonial penmanship. And I thought, you, you all know, know that, right? What, what is news? You know, it's just, as, as we know now, news is just, just a combination of rumor and things invented by Russian trolls who are, Speaking of Dostoevsky, they got us down. You know, these trolls are like, yeah. their descriptions of idiotic Americans, they're so on, you know. I, I want us to know ourselves better than they do. That's, that's one of my ambitions, is, is to get in there, get into the troll mind, and see if we can uh, make better stories about who we are. Better ones, that people are kind of go, oh, wow, well, that's a good story. Instead of just this junk rumor stuff that's going around and, and junk kind of uh, whatever. Um, what did you ask? I was asking about your Colonial Times oh, magazine. Yes. <laughs> yes, I thought, you know, you know. Thought I'd forget about that I one, huh? things should go <laughs> slower, you know, and um, not much happened in Colonial Times. And, and I thought, you know, if you could go back to a day and just invent what might have happened in a small town, and then I would, I, I sold this to, to my neighbors in, in, our, in our town. I just had a, also, I tried a lot of things. I had a bakery also, I would, would bake things. And, and that never worked out because I would just um, design a menu and, and the proposed uh, uh, items that could be on it. And I would bring samples to people like, this could be the kind of carrot muffin that you could order in bulk if you wanted. And this is a little piece of the, the um, type of cookie that I would make. And they would go, I like that cookie, but could it be another sugar cookie? And then I'd go back and have to make sugar cookies. And so bring like a more. test kitchen. Yes. <laughs> it, was, it never went beyond test kitchen. So uh, anyway, uh, but I'm interested in failure. And this book, uh, All the Things I Lost in the Flood, is really about plan Bs and failures and what happens when things just don't work out. It started out in Hurricane Sandy when uh, uh, my studio is on Canal Street and uh, the... Uh, it was completely flooded. And so I went a couple days later uh, to look at what I could fish out, you know, and, uh, and there was, what was down there was a lifetime of stuff, of, of um, props from shows and electronics and projectors and a whole lots of inventions and sculpture and paintings and, you know, a lot of stuff. And it was a seawater is powerful. It pulverizes things. It had turned all of this stuff into oatmeal. You know what happens to circuit boards? They just, they pull apart. And then the little component things just start floating and then they just dissolve in seawater. So it was all just junk, immediate junk. And I, I was, at first I was completely devastated. And it was only like two days later that um, I thought, uh, I don't have to clean the basement. Ever. And then two days after that, I'm looking at the inventory of all the things and reading the lists of things that I lost. And I thought, you know, reading these words is just as good, maybe better, than having a basement full of this stuff. And that's when I thought, I, what kind of 
we live in a world of representation, of language that begins to substitute for things. So in the beginning of this chapter, I was talking about the, the power of language to be things. I mean, we live in a representational world, which is part of the reason we have this death grip on phones, is that it's all disappeared. You know, there, there isn't a record store. Uh, well, there are a few record stores, but mostly your records are in your phone. Your friends are in your phone. All your things are in your phone. Your dates, your, your calendars, your notes, your, you know, it's all in there. So you have this, you know, because you've lost so much, you know. And, and so the, the theme of loss in this book is about how language can represent things and become things. The way I think, early it's a little bit geeky, but the, the way the word yellow can be a kind of memorial to the color yellow. Uh, how does that work? So it's also about how we treat things that we've lost. You know, you can treat, I wrote a song once about, uh, it was about hope, and it was uh, about living next to a train track, and the train comes through outside, and you have a whole shelf of things, porcelain and glass things on the shelf, and the train rattles the shelf and stuff falls off and breaks. And, and it keeps doing that and you keep replacing it and you keep replacing it. You replace it with cheaper and cheaper things until finally you just have this cheap junk on your shelf. So what do you do with the things that you lose? Do you try to put them back, replace them? When a friend of yours or a family member of yours dies, sometimes I've seen that happen with people almost devalue the loss. They play it down. Like, I, I didn't know him that well, or, you know, he wasn't that great a guy, you know, so that you won't have to miss him so much the rest of your life. You know, so you kind of go, wasn't that, wasn't that much, you know, wasn't that important? So, you know, to, to make enough room in your mind to, for all of that, I think is, is something that's really important to do and, and not to let it overwhelm you. So this, this, um, uh, looks at um, this book is a, is a way to look at how language affects imagery actually and how it pushes into the world of, of um, sculpture, pictures, film and, and uh, uh, you had talked about Burroughs when we were talking before this and um, this was a song that I wrote called um, Language is a Virus from Outer Space which is a Burroughs quote and I when somebody would ask me, why'd you write that song? I would say, isn't it a strange thing for a writer to say that um, language is a disease communicable by mouth? Now, when I was writing this book, I had to look at my own, you know, half-wit comments like that and sort of kind of go, well, what does that mean? And then I realized, you know what, you know, language, I mean, a virus is not a... A disease, a virus is not even alive. It's one of these things over on, it's called on the, on the edge of life. It's an agent. It's a, it's a kind of an, a, an activator. But it is not alive. It does not have life. So I thought that even makes it even more connected to language and how language acts in terms of replication and mimicry and deception and representation. And what you have then is things going viral. And you see the world that Burroughs was, was envisioning of language and, and, and uh, how it can uh, spin, how you spin it. And he is the grandfather of the trolls, I'm telling you. <laughs> you know, he's, he saw this coming. He was a, a really dark and, and fascinating voice. And he, he talked about uh, 
America in a way that was, I found um, completely fascinating. And so I, I uh, got a chance in this book to write a little bit more layers on top of that. Uh, because it, when you look at your work, it's, it's, um, it's, it looks different as you, as you look back on it. So. You quote Kierkegaard, um, and I'm not sure if it was actually in the book or in Heart of a Dog, and you say that um, Kierkegaard says, life can only be understood backwards. And I'm wondering if now that you're looking back at your career and at your work and putting together a book that has so much of a collection of your journey, do you feel like you understand it any better? Well, the whole quote of that is, um, you know, that you can under, only understand life looking at it backwards, but, but um, we have to move forwards. So that's the, that's the difficulty in this, you know, you can understand backwards. So what do you do? Do you like walk backwards while you're looking at your, you know, things that you've learned and glance over your shoulder this way? Um, I, I think it's, it's a, that's why I was saying I, I sometimes see these little flags of things that just uh, say, do this in this circumstance, do this and that, you know, remember uh, to be ardent, remember to be positive, you know, and, and uh, so those things are enough for me. I mean, I've, I've, there's, uh, to, to just kind of key me into a, a way to uh, go on, because I, I, I think we are all, um, uh, it's, it's such a crazy moment, because when you talk about stories now, uh, I've been on a lot of climate panels, for example, and the, these things started at the Black Diamond Library in Copenhagen and, and last year, and it's a co collaboration of many libraries throughout the world who are beginning to share conversations about climate, which I think, and so, uh, one of the first ones was in, uh, in Copenhagen last summer that I did with a, a really wonderful writer, writer, Icelandic writer called Jon, S-J-O-N, who wrote something called The Blue Fox, among many other beautiful things. He wrote something uh, it's like a kind of conspiracy of the hunter and the blue fox. He's hunting her, and she's and they're kind of talking telepathically about this, and she finally allows him to shoot her. And so it's this kind of conspiracy of, of, of action. And so... Uh, he had spent a lot of time at a climate institute in Potsdam, like because he's an artist, and he also worked uh, worked a lot with Bjork and wrote, wrote Dancer in the Dark and a lot of wonderful things. But he's very focused now on climate, as many artists are. And what do you do to make art about climate? How does that work? How do you how do you engage with that issue? I'm sure a lot of you are dealing with that. How do you how do you do and how do you look at a story like that? Because we are unique human beings. Because we are suddenly. Uh, suddenly in our movies, suddenly in our books, end is being mentioned. Uh, the doomsday clock, the sixth extinction, you know, and so with Sean, and these are very difficult things to discuss because we're humans and we're, we are people who do things and we're not people who, so, so Sean, for example, is saying, you know, the sixth extinction, it's not about we're going into it, we're in it. And so how do you say it's too late, you know, and, and of course, a lot of the climate stuff is about, yes, those 
fire engines of technology are going to see, ooh, tipping point, let's drive in and solve it, let's knit up the ozone hole, no problem, we just didn't see it coming, you know, but we will fix it. Really? When? When? So we are in this moment where we, we have to look at all of these ways these scenarios are being played out throughout all of these fictions and hallucinations and things, and also, uh, who would it be? Uh, I mean, how, how would you tell a story? I mean, first of all, the carbon loop is going to happen no matter what. You know, and, and I find a comfort in that. We're going to be scraped off the planet whether we drive anymore or not. It's just what happens. It's a carbon loop, and it happens, and this is the sixth time it will happen. So, you know, that's, it just happens. Yeah. I find that... I find that kind of a joyful thing you know, in a weird way, you know. So I, uh, it doesn't stop me from wanting to put the brakes on in every possible way and, and make this a livable place. Um, I spent a lot of time at NASA when I was the artist in residence there looking at Mars, you know. I would go into a place and it was a, a hundred yard whiteboard about the greening of Mars, you know, because Mars is where we're going to go. Uh, it's the most likely thing, and it's and NASA is working on making it it green uh, and putting oxygen and plant life there, so we'll have a place to go. Um, and now that we know so much about taking care of planets, we're going to take care of Mars. <laughs> we did such a good job here. Let's go as fast as possible. <laughs> anyway. Um, so when you have this idea of telling the story of how things might end, what are you even talking about? So um, if you're telling a story, you tell it to someone. So we, as human beings, if we tell the story of the end, we're talking to who? Who are we talking to? That's an awesome thing, to tell a story, and it's not even to anyone. I asked one of my Buddhist teachers, I said, how does karma work if nobody's here, if all the humans are scraped off the planet? How does that work then? How does energy, what, what happens? And he said, well, I said, what, well, you know? And he said, <laughs> he does said, he? Yes. <laughs> Shall I tell you? Yeah. Okay. He said, that's why the Buddha talked about other universes. I was like, okay. okay. Uh, we're actually not, after death, uh, geographically limited to our planet, as you might know. You don't have to stay around your house, your city, or your planet. You're free. You're free. You, you, go, you go into, into, the, into the now, into the wherever we are, you know, wherever that, that place is that we're all actually in all the time anyway. But um, it's, so I, I think storytelling now is, is it's, it's so crucial. You are people who are in media. You are know what it is to tell a story. Think about how you're going to tell that. Think about trying to be really honest about it and, and free and positive at the same time. You, you, I, one of the things I did learn in, in the last few years is that it is possible to be happy about being unhappy. <laughs> it's possible. You have this, this uh, you know, realization that, wow, I, that you, you recognize how you feel. You're not trying to be something else. You, and that recognition is a huge amount of pleasure because you've achieved that way to recognize how things really are, not how you think they should be, or your mother thinks they should be, or your president thinks they should be, but how you think they should be. You know, so it's, uh, um, those of you who are artists know that it's like being God. 
It is a godlike thing. You know, it wasn't there. You put it there. Yeah, making something where nothing existed before. Nothing was there. You put it there. So this is a, a, a great moment to put things there. You know, put things out there. We, people need that desperately. You know, just think of how um, lost we all are. You know, and, and frazzled and things. You know, when you get hit every 40 seconds with information, it's, it, is, um, it is the responsibility of us. And I, us by saying, I'm saying media, people who are interested in stories and, 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 uh, and communication to, uh, to think about what we're doing. And also to, you know, try to slow down if you can possibly do it and, and resist that, that machine of, of, um, of, of bombardment. Because this is the technique of, of uh, making people crazy. You're bombarding them with information from all sides until they kind of go, I don't even know what's happening anymore. I, I just can't deal with it because I just 400 emails just came in. And I, I, I just, you know, so, so uh, um, analyze that. And... Uh, uh, you're the ones who are going to be doing that, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's no joke, you know. Laurie, one of the things that I contend with now is sort of the notion that we're preaching to the converted, that we're in our own little echo, echo chamber. We all sort of believe a lot of the same things. People in this room, how do we get through to the people that feel differently, that aren't? as outraged as we are, that are critical of our outrage, that don't believe in the same things we do, that we so fundamentally believe need to be addressed? I think first thing is to take that wall down of, of us and them thinking that we, we know this thing and believe these things and they don't. That's maybe not so true. You know, just first of all, question that, that it's, it's our side and their side. Um, when you, when you see the sides come together, uh, we, we've created the situation of, of two sides screaming at each other. And, and, and we know many of the ways that this was created because our, our, our media has become personalized. So you hear only what you want to hear. And what, you, what somebody has decided is good for you to hear. So open your ears. So first of all, take that barrier down and walk outside your, your cozy area and go into some place where you don't belong. One of the most, um, uh, the things that I've learned, times I've learned the most uh, about life from being an artist is putting myself in situations that are really wrong. And at one point I, I did something called happiness and it was a project about, about just that. So in one case it was, I um, decided to, I worked at McDonald's for uh, a while and um, just to see what it was like. And um, what was it like? It was great, actually. You know, I, I, one of the things about McDonald's is I'm, I'm probably, you know, from the Starbucks group, and we think McDonald's is cheap food. Well, you know, it's, it's pretty good food. You know, it, it's like real eggs, uh, it's real coffee, and it's, um, uh, but we're, we're trained that, you know, unless you spend $7 for American Sherman, she knows something, uh, that it's not good coffee, you know. So anyway, um, I, uh, I learned a little bit about stereotypes. I mean, I, the McDonald's I worked, was, worked in was in Chinatown, and so uh, a lot of, uh, uh, I was working away, and uh, most of my coworkers were Chinese, and so at one point, Peng and Anna, they were like this Chinese 
like martial arts duo of like making burgers like you know so I was trying to keep up I was like okay this is this is like a Chinese opera this is like excellent <laughs> choreography so I'm trying to like do it and and then once they said uh say uh Anderson you're um they called you Anderson yeah you're you're German right and I was like I mean I'm a Swedish kind of a Scottish sort of person Irish and um uh, I said, you know, no, I'm like a mixture of like Scottish and I, and, but they didn't want to hear that. They just want like a, a very clear word, you know, they don't want to hear like details and complicated things <laughs> and just too much information. So, so uh, I said, yeah, basically, you know, basically I'm, I'm German. So then they called me the German from then on. <laughs> Hey, get the German to mop that up. Hey, get the German to make that slurry. You know, and then after a while of being the German, I, I kind of like uh, became like a lot more efficient. You know, and I was like doing things in a more mechanical way, and you know, getting it all done and just giving it a, like giving them my list at the end of the day. Um, it's how you think about yourself that, that matters. Another another experiment was I went out into a. Um, an Amish farmer, I was getting really burned out on technology. So I went out to this farm where they didn't have anything. They just had wheels, they had wind, that was it. And um, I worked on the farm with this family for a while, and it, the thing was I didn't do that much of work. I scrubbed the floors, but it was mostly in, indoors because it was raining the entire time. So this family and a newborn, we just would sit around the kitchen table, like, for days. And... And do what? Listen to the little newborn crying. So it was like the wind and the rain and the crying. And this was really... And then there was this uh, uh, kind of anger there that I haven't seen maybe ever. And it would be this super slow motion anger. So the woman would be sitting there, I'd be sitting there, husband and the baby. And she would say, David. You should never speak to me in that, that way again. I, I, I hope you never do. And, you know, since no one had said anything for, like, hours, <laughs> I, was like, uh, I looked over at the husband. He was no reaction. He was tuned to another station, totally. So, um, I, you know, anyway, uh, finally, uh, I, one thing I do remember about this, I w basically I thought, get me back to New York where people can actually say, fuck you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just express themselves. You know, they were literally choking on their own goodness. You know, they why just, were you why were you there? Why was I there? I was there to get out of my little world, get out of my little bubble, the one the, the bubble you were talking about. Right. How did was, you find them? How did you choose? Oh, you them? can find Amish people. They're not <laughs> they're just living out there. Just like but you not just walk door, out like... there and you say actually I was at a farmer's market and I, I saw these these farmers and and they were just, their hands, their hands were hanging by their sides in this relaxed way. And, and they were just, they were there selling bread. And, but they, they didn't care if you bought their bread or if you didn't buy their bread. Either way, fine. And I thought, I want to live that way. I don't want to like, <laughs> have to buy their bread or have to think about their bread or just, if I want bread, I'll get it. So, you know, kind of easygoing thing. Um, so I said, can I work, come and stay with you I can, and work on your farm? And they said, first of all, they were like, like that, why? And then, then they said, yeah, okay. Now, when I met their grandma, the grandma once finally came to visit in this little 
kid, there, there was also a two-year-old who was very jealous, of, of course, of the newborn. So there's that dynamic going on as well. There are two kids. And um, you always forget about the jealous two-year-old who's in the background going, what about me? <laughs> anyway, Grandma comes, and she says to this little kid, she goes, um, hey, come over and kiss Grandma. And um, uh, his name was, what was his name? It was Spanish for North Wind. It was a beautiful name. And... Um, and he's like, he really doesn't want to do it. And she keeps, uh, uh, you know, pestering and just saying, come on, I'm here to kiss, come on and kiss and hug grandma. And he finally says, well, I'll kiss you when we're in the living room. And we've been in the kitchen for about two weeks. So it seems <laughs> pretty safe to him to say, you know, if we're in the living room, he will do that. Finally... Uh, the next day, we're all in the living room, and Grandma's saying, uh, "Okay, it's time to kiss Grandma. We're in the living room now. Come on!" And I'll never forget this guy. He gets up. He's, he's slowly he's dragging himself over, and he he uh, puts his mouth to her cheek. And I thought, I am seeing this happen. A tiny boy who had just learned to kiss without affection, to kiss as, as part of a deal, as a kind of a payment. And it was, it was hair-raising, you know, the things that you, you learn so early. What is a kiss worth, you know? And when are you going to do it and when are you not? So anyway, that's why I did things, to get out of my thing. And, and, um, and probably the, the most recent thing that I felt jumped the farthest was a collaboration that I did with Mohammed El Garani from uh, Guantanamo, and this was a, um, a a project of that I had done a lot of work with prisons and 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 telepresence, and um, and built, uh, this started in the late '90s when I did a work in um, in Austria. I couldn't think of they had invited me to a 13th century church to do a, a sound work, and it was all about reverb, so I couldn't really get it uh, working out. It was, it was too fuzzy. I wanted to use language. It was all just flying away. So didn't have any ideas. I walked up to the, t the bell tower of this. It was a 13th century church, as I said. And in the middle of this perfect little Austrian town is a maximum security prison. So I'm thinking, whoa. And I'm looking over at the guard tower guy with the machine gun. I'm in the bell tower. He's in the guard tower. I come down and the, tell the curators, I'm going to do a work about telepresence. We're going to build a video studio in the, in the prison. We're gonna make a life-size cast of this statue and put him, put this statue uh, of the prisoner in the apse of the church. Then we're gonna beam the image of the person sitting very still onto uh, the, the cast of his body and it will be like a living sculpture. So this is in 1998, so we, we had some pretty good ways to do it. And I said, this will be about telepresence, the fo function of telepresence and cameras in our culture, and the attitude of the church and the prison to the body. Incarceration, incarnation, they are not there. So surprisingly, the curators, curator said, uh, great. I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> so as it turns out, we didn't do that because Austrian law forbids uh, prisoners to use their images. Prisoners no longer own their own images, a 21st century situation as well. Who owns your image and what can they do with it? Now it's a very contemporary dilemma.
So, uh, um, so anyway, I thought, in a way, good, because that gets me off the hook. Uh, I got back on the hook when their attorney general said, I love your project. You have special permission to do this. Use the prisoner's image. I said, back and forth. It didn't work for various reasons. The Whitney then asked me to do something a few weeks later, and I said, let's do something with Sing Sing. Let's do something with two guarded institutions. What do you keep in there with those guards in a museum and in a prison? What's in there that's so, so precious? So um, we were going to do T1 lines and kind of fancy tech stuff that would bounce the prisoner's image. And, and there are lots of prisoners in Sing Sing now. A lot of them are artists who got dragged in uh, under the Rockefeller drug law, which means you know, you're s sitting there with a, a, a joint. You're not even smoking. You're definitely not selling it. You can get 25 to life. Now, what happened at that time was suddenly all these prisoners are showing up and uh, coinciding with, hey, the privatization of prisons, of course. What do you need if you're uh, prisoners of your business? You need customers. So all of these laws are invoked and people swept in. So we had a number of people who were doing meditation. They were artists in prison. And so they were interested in doing this project with me. Um, that didn't happen either. Why? Too political. Don't want to do political art, do you? Uh, so anyway, um, there was an Italian uh, curator, Germano Cilant, who heard about this project and said, I have a place, cultural institution, and prison for you in Milan. So we did this in Milan with the Prada uh, Foundation, uh, and the sponsors a lot of big art events, and um, uh, San Vittorio Prison. San Vittorio Prison is mostly has white-collar guys, in for life, real weasels. You know, they have basically dismantled the Italian economy. Uh, they know Greek, they know Latin, they're writing books, they have knives, they have big wine collections. Their friends can come over, they're wearing Armani. Everything's right except for the shoes. The shoes are slippers, because they're never going anywhere ever. They're in for life. And anyway, because they were, so I, you know, the worst part in a situation like this is to, it, it, it's obnoxious, you know, you're an artist and you go, I'm going to collaborate with a prisoner who's going to sit there forever, and then I'm going to sign my name as my art project. And you're like, oh, that's revolting. What kind of, like, horrible exploitation of that is of, of people in prison? But one of the things that happened was, so I thought, I, I have to find someone who wants to do this, who is motivated to do this. In fact, these uh, guys had decided who my collaborator was going to be, and because they're lawyers and because they're very skilled at shifting your attention from here over to there, and here, you know, I'm talking eventually to this guy named Santino, a bank robber, murderer, writer, and I said, Santino, if you do this project with me, how do you see it? And he said, um, I see it as a virtual escape. And I said, you're my man. Let's do it. So we did this, and it was a really... Um, intense project. I always wanted to do in the United States, and then when the Park Avenue Armory offered uh, me a chance to do something, I said, let's do streaming, live streaming of 12 prisoners from all upstate New York, and they will be arranged in li twice life-size statues, their image will be beamed on them, they will sit in the prison for several hours a day, and then we'll go to playback, and there'll be like two lines of them, it'll be like Hatshepsut statues in ancient Egypt of just stillness and punishment and uh, and technology, and so uh, we worked on that. We we got it almost there, and then Homeland Security got in touch with me and said, "You will never do this project in the United States of America." Did not see the upside to that, so 
through a, a, a long sort of uh, circuitous route, I began working with a group in London called Reprieve, who represents people on death row in the United States and people in Guantanamo. And one of the, I was explaining this to one of the head lawyers there. And, I, you know, when you're explaining a project that's a little bit wacky like this, you know, we're going to build a big statue and we're going to beam this person in. And, and you, you, you kind of think they're going to go, thank you so much for your very interesting project. It's been so nice talking to you. Click, you know. But this person said, tell me more. This is the lead lawyer of Reprieve. And so we did this project with Mohammed El-Gurani, the youngest detainee at Guantanamo. He was captured when he was 12. And, and, and detained until he was 21, cut up, um, head broken, teeth broken, sliced up, in solitary, tortured, waterboarded, everything. Um, one of the things I learned in working with this Guantanamo project was pretty much 95% of the people there are very unlucky people who were sold by the North Alliance for $5,000. And just happened to be you know, cab drivers, students. Mohammed was a student who was a computer student who was a goat herder and went to study in his uncle's computer school in Pakistan. And he got pulled in because we needed Saudis. We needed Saudi prisoners. That was the, that was the template we needed. There are some bad guys in Guantanamo, about 10, you know. So the rest of these guys are there. And I was the first American he had met who was not his torturer or his interrogator. So we had a long way to go to meet each other and, and see who we were. And he was an amazing guy. He turned out to be um, uh, a, uh, have wonderful stories, you know, uh, about what had happened there. This is, this is a person who is a survivor, first of all. He's a, he is... Uh, one of the most inspiring people you'll ever meet. Anyway, uh, he told stories, for example, like one of his fellow uh, uh, detainees was, um, had a dream that a submarine came to rescue all the prisoners in Guantanamo. The next night, uh, the whole Guantanamo Bay was filled with helicopters and ships looking for the submarine this guy had dreamed about. This is a dark dream. We are in a dark dream here of illusion. Try to find out what those lines are. Anyway, we did this project and we, we made a life-size, well, a statue. Uh, we built a studio in, in West Africa where Mohammed lives. And I also have to say one of the things that fascinated me about this was language because the reason this happened, the reason Guantanamo happened is language. We capture these guys, and then we say they are, we, the first thing we do is declare them non-persons. These people, non-persons. So Geneva Conventions do not apply. Second, you know, we then change all of the language about what happens. We were not allowed, for example, to say that American doctors were present in every torture session, which they were. What we had to say was American, the American Behavioral Science Consultancy team was at every session with the detainees, okay? There were countless suicides. Suddenly, none. Why? There were behavioral, uh, self-inflicted events resulting in death. We live in a cold place. Make no mistake, what's going on here? You know, we built this 
double life size, well, it's the size of Lincoln Memorial, and Muhammad, who is not allowed to come in like any other Guantanamo person, we beamed him in, and what happened was we also presented, I have to leave in 30 seconds, <laughs> we, we, um, there's a camera, you know how, you always know where the cameras are now, you, any place you go, you, you can, the eye in the sky, sense. yeah. We have a sixth sense for the cameras. We had a camera in uh, the top of the armory, so if you stood in, with your back to the projection of Muhammad, you re pretty soon people who came there realized that he could see them. So they stood in front of the statue with signs, but I had no microphones because he'd been called a terrorist too many times, this, this boy who was, you know. Um, and uh, people were, had the opportunity to read in absolute detail the, 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 um, his case, the US government story of who he was, which was a terrorist, an eight-year-old terrorist, um, and his story. And they were juxtaposed, these two stories. And everyone who was there had read that. And they came and stood with these signs and instruments and dancing and mostly, you know, with their mouths going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was, uh, for, that, for me, that, um, you have certain moments in your life when you're just going, you can break some walls. You can break the wall that you're in, right? You're trapped. We're all trapped in this little thing that we're in. And we built it ourselves with our own little media tools. Use those tools to get out of it. We have to get out of it. What's on the other side is not people who are like crazy and scary. They're just people like we are. You know, and really keep that in mind. Don't be fooled into the, you know, it, it, this language of, you know, us and them is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You know, it, it's just been, it's a fiction. So that, I mean, uh, whoops. I know. I know. One parting thought for the audience a about how we can all mobilize. I'm going to go back to, to Mingi Rinpoche who says, don't forget to have a really, 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 the reason we're here, Good time. <laughs> okay. So you, thanks for coming. Lori Anderson. Lori Anderson. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. 
If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.